0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 171. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast apps. And if you can leave us a review, we would greatly appreciate it. And uh, visit us at uh, codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, more, send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net or uh, hit me up on Slack at Joe follow us on twitter
1: at codingblocks or head to um www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page with that I am the real Alan underwood
0: and I'm j to the Z elemental p and uh I'm michael outlaw right yeah that's uh that's good <laughs> <laughs> This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the cloud scale monitoring and analytics platform for ensuring the health and performance of your databases. And Linode, simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. All right. So
1: in this particular episode, we are going back to, I think, what is probably our favorite book collectively speaking, which is designing data intensive applications. And then this time we're talking about partitioning. Now um, we have a sit in for Jay-Z today. That's how you doing. <laughs> we, have, yeah, we have a special guest. Uh, Joe's Joe's uh, had a bit of a toothache. So um, if you've ever had one, you know how those can kind of tear you down. So he is absent. <laughs> Good call. Good call. All right. Hey, and. So as we like I, I can't, to do. I can't
0: believe that you would like y- you spoiled it. Like maybe nobody would have noticed. Maybe everybody would have thought my impersonation was spot on, and it would have went the entire time. And then afterwards, somebody had been like, "Wait a minute, Joe wasn't there."
1: Yeah, I do feel a little bad about that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but I am curious though because <clears throat> I had to I had to miss an episode recording uh, a few episodes back, and the show was uncharacteristically short with, <laughs> <laughs> while I was gone. And so now I was like, oh, am I the reason why the show is that long? So now the question is going to be, Alan, like, is the show normal length now that I'm back without, and Jay-Z isn't here, or is it also uncharacteristically short because, you know, a third of us are missing? Yeah, I don't know. It
1: might have just been a shorter topic. I don't know. We'll find out tonight if this goes. If this goes an hour and a half, we'll know
0: that. I don't know. Well, I think maybe, the last maybe. one was much shorter than that, though, wasn't it? It
1: was like an hour, I think. Yeah, yeah right at. Yeah, I don't know. We'll I bad. I wouldn't feel bad.
0: I hey, so that bad.
1: As we like to do, um, we like to thank those who took the time to leave us a review and see us how outlaw is the chosen speaker of names. Uh, he's gonna go ahead and do this one.
0: <laughs> okay. Uh, so from iTunes, we have wohem321. And thank you. Yes,
1: very much a thank you. And also, we didn't put it in the notes here, but because we are talking about designing data intensive applications, we always like to do this if you want to leave a comment on this particular show, which will be at www.codingblocks.net slash episode 171. Or if you're in a good podcast player, you can probably just click the link there from the show notes in that and go straight to it. Drop us a comment and you'll be entered for a chance to win a copy of this, our favorite book. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And like Alan said, we're gonna be talking about partitioning tonight. So uh if you're following along in the book with us, this would be page one ninety nine in the book. But if you're on a Kindle, this would be it's like six percent through. So, uh, <laughs> so position eleven million one hundred and twenty eight thousand yeah, yeah know. out of like eight billion. Yeah, you, you gotta you got a bit to go, but you're you're getting there. You're progressing.
1: Right. right. Hey, so this partitioning thing, man, this is actually a really good chapter uh because I mean, we've been dealing with a lot of this ourselves in in our in our work days. And so this one kind of hits real close to home on some of the things that we've had to deal with um dealing with a lot of data. So first, I think we should talk about what partitioning is and what it is also
0: known by, which is a little irritating maybe. So isn't that like true of all things technology though? Like everybody has to put their little spin on it to make it, you know, make it their own. Yeah, I would agree with that. This one,
1: I I feel like for such a fundamental thing on what it does though, like throwing so many different terms out for the same thing is really a shame because it, it is confusing. So like a couple of these, it's called a shard in MongoDB or Elasticsearch or solar cloud. It's called a region in H base, a tablet in big table. I mean, okay. A V node in Cassandra or RIOC. Is that RIOC or RIOC? RIOC. Reoc? I thought it was RIOC, but. Okay. That's what I always said. And then a V bucket in couch base because all of those say shard or partition or.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, at least I, I, I'm more willing to accept shard you know with it but just because like i guess i'm more familiar with it and so that's why i'm more forgiving of of that one but some of these other ones like a v bucket and a v node i'm like come on or a tablet yeah like come on well i thought that one, they were just being cute cuz it's big table so they're like well who's your a right. tablet right yeah I, I just whatever it's
1: partitions so but so uh, then
0: we didn't talk like notice though there's no relational databases mentioned but yet you can do these same types of concepts in like a Postgres, right? Uh, Yeah.
1: I mean, you can do it in Postgres, you can do it in SQL server. I would imagine Oracle and all them have partitioning as well, right?
0: Yeah. You can, you can part in. Yeah. You can partition is what I was trying to get at was that.
1: Yeah. Cool. So what is it?
0: What is a partition? You want to take a stab at this one? Uh, reading the Webster's dictionary or just how I would define it. I I would, I would take a simple approach of just saying like, it's a way of splitting a, a data set into smaller chunks. Uh, and you know, again, this is not like a Webster's dictionary version. I don't know if you've like gathered that already, but, but yeah, if I, if I had to think about it, like, you know, if I was trying to describe this to like, you know, a five-year-old, right. If you already had a, Table with a truckload of data in it, maybe you would want to partition that data off by, um, well, let's like, like if it was enterprise data, right? Maybe you'd want to partition it by customer, right? And so, like each customer, technically it's one table, but it's basically like each customer has their own mini table of data in it, would be like one way to think about it.
1: Yeah. So I'll give you not the Webster's definition, but kind of what they said in this book is, and it's very similar to what he had right there, is the one thing they wanted you to keep in mind, though, is when we talked about replication in the past, that was making a copy of data, right? Like, so if you, let's say you had a Postgres database or something, you make a copy of that and you put it on another drive somewhere. That's not what it is. Partitioning is spreading the data out over multiple storage sections doesn't necessarily have to be different drives like like what outlaw said a second ago it can be chunks but you do it either because the data won't all fit on a single storage mechanism or because you need it to be faster in some way
0: in in the way that this can like tie into like get confused with like replication though is that because in the repli- in the case of replication you're putting an exact copy on another system right in the case of partitioning you, it's not an exact copy because it would be unique data, but it could be on a separate system. But
1: let's also let's let's not mix up the fact that partitioning is—it's not like it's mutually exclusive right. from lep- replication. You can totally replicate yes. those partitions, but the reason you partition the data is different than the reason you replicate the data.
0: Yeah, I would say I would say you replicate the data because you want redundancy. You want resiliency in the case of an outage. You partition the data because you want to increase your IO to the data. Either, either increase
1: the IO or because you straight up can't store it on a single drive. Oh, because well, that's it's just too point. big. That's a great yeah. point. Yep. Yeah. So typically the records, they, they do talk about the partitions and they say that, Hey, you usually have these records. They are stored on exactly one partition. So what they mean by that is if you have a record, a row, a document, depending on your data storage, right, whether it's a NoSQL database or a relational database or something, you aren't going to split a record or a document across partitions. You're going to put the whole document in one partition. And and just like Outlaw said a minute ago, each partition is basically its own little mini database.
0: I like to th- I like to think of it as its own mini table.
1: Yeah, because, you could probably think about it like that. I think the reason why they said database in, in the book is because it handles a lot of operations like indexing and things like that behind the scenes, right? So
0: But so I mean you're it, typically it, like within a quote database, you're part you can partition multiple things mm-hmm. in that thing in that thing, right? And so that's why like and you still access it as one thing and you don't necessarily know or care like how those reads or, or writes are being distributed you just do the the one query and and get the results back but yeah. and so that's why like in my mind it, it's kind of like i think of it as more as like you know many tables that are like yeah. cuz i really like that enterprise example because then you know if if you were to think about like like if your application served uh you know fortune 500 companies and so they might have a truckload of data uh you know each of those companies might have a truckload of data and you were to partition that by uh each of those companies right then you could still access that one thing like select star from users or whatever and you know uh you know and read just your tenant your 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 uh customer's data you know without uh you know have, having to you know, it's still the same database connection and it's just like a portion of the table Right.
1: So we've already touched on a little bit here, but why partition? Well, one thing is scalability, right? So they say different partitions can be put on completely separate nodes. And when we're talking about nodes here, we're actually talking about compute instances, right? So, um, I mean, if you're coming from a Kubernetes world, you're going to have nodes in Kubernetes, and those are basically your VMs or, or the machines that different pods can run on, right? So your pods are your little compute instances, and your node is the actual VM or the overall machine that those pods can run on. And so they make it – they, they want to call it out that the data can actually live on different machines.
0: Yeah. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about, like the examples here that didn't make this list, uh, when you were talking about like shard and region and all that was Kafka. But I guess it's because, you know, it's just partitioning and Kafka, you know, it doesn't have some kind of special name. But, but like a lot of this conversation, like in my mind, I'm thinking Kafka as we go through a lot of this.
1: Well, Kafka is really interesting because their partitioning, as far as I know, um, you, you might have done a little bit more deep diving on this than I have, but I think in Kafka, partitioning is literally just different folders on the same disk. And they do that on purpose. So they don't spread it out across different nodes, I don't believe, because they want to ensure incredibly fast writes and reads.
0: No, y- your partitions can totally be spread up across different nodes. Cause then you have in sync replicas for that, for a given partition within a topic.
1: But isn't the repli, the replicas can be spread across nodes, but I thought all the rights were on the same disc. I thought all the partitions
0: were on the same disc. So, so don't, let's not get, let's not care about like what the underlying disk structure is for the broker. Okay. If like you had three brokers and you have a, a Kafka topic of like, I don't know, orders, right? And, and you might, whatever your partitioning scheme is, cause you might, cause it's cause Kafka, the partition is going to be dependent on your keying for it. Mm-hmm. And that keying is going to determine like which partition is going to go on to. And you can have those partitions spread across to where like, uh, you know, if you had three partitions for that topic, each one of those brokers could be the leader for that particular. Um, one, and then you could still have a replication factor as well. So maybe you have like a three partitions and a replication factor of two, meaning that for any one partition, there's two copies of it, a primary and a secondary, right? Right. That way, right. that way your, your reads could be served by either, but the, the writes, any, whoever's the in sync replica, for that given partition once the once it's decided, hey, based on the keying mechanism, this is where that data should go, then that instinct that that leader for that um partition would take the right and then okay. distribute that out to the to the replica to the read replicas
1: okay so. Getting getting back into this where they're talking about separate nodes, what they're saying is the reason you do this with the separate nodes is you can take extremely large data sets and you spread them out across a number of disks. And then that also means that your queries can be s- distributed across many processors is what they called it, right? So, like, when you do this – and and I think – by the way, I think this goes back to why they called it the database, like little mini databases, is because – the queries are actually issued to the node that has the partition. And so that thing is processing the query on that particular partition, um, which is pretty cool when you think about it. And then,
0: I mean, when you think about like, sorry to interrupt, but, but just going to just elaborate on this like scale capability for a moment, you know, you think about like, I mean, let's face it, like a lot of us, the the types of databases we're going to work on, we probably you know, might not be working on database at that type of scale necessarily. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you think about like a, um, a Facebook or a LinkedIn comes to mind since they created Kafka or that's where Kafka got its roots, uh, you know, or, or or like a Google or YouTube kind of scale where like you're trying to do some kind of a search across someone, something that large, right. Like then, you know, you want, you want, you, you can't possibly have one, Uh, drive system, which it it definitely wouldn't be a single drive, but even if you had an array of drives, you know, you're not going to be able to like, you know, have it in one data center and still meet all your, your networking needs and latency needs. And then replications like it wouldn't happen. So you'd have to spread that across. And then, like you said, because you spread the, the, because the physical disc is hosted by a separate machine, then you get to spread the IO and the CPU load of performing that, that query, uh, you know, across multiple machines. So it's like really a super cool concept when you think about it, but also really complex to, it is. to execute. So like the people who put this stuff together, I mean, hats off to them, man. Cause this is, this is some deep computer science stuff. You know, yeah, it's not easy, and is, I mean, is, is to call it CS one hundred
1: and one, <laughs> right? No, totally not, and to call it out explicitly, so, so if you were to, if you needed faster processing, right, like you're issuing these queries, then you might spread your data out across more partitions, meaning it could go across more nodes, right? And and a good example of this, we we did an episode on Elasticsearch a while back, but the way Elasticsearch works. And and I may be butchering this a little bit in terms of terminology, but the way it works generally is you issue a query and it'll go to something like a master node. And then you have a bunch of different data nodes. Let's say you have 10 of them. And let's say that you issue a query saying, I want the top 100 results back sorted by last name, right? What that master node is going to do is issue that same query to all 10 of the other data nodes out there. They're each going to grab the top 100 records ordered by last name, and then it's going to bring together those um, 100 times 10, so those thousand results back, and then and then sort those at the master node to get the true top 100 ordered by name. So so you just issued that query basically 11 times, right? You did it across all the data nodes and you got it back to the master node, put all those things together and then did that query again to sort it and get back your other one. So this is a good example of, and it's it's cool if you think about it, that will speed up your queries on those separate ones, right? Because they've got less data to work with, but you might think, okay, well, crap, I'll just make, I'll make a hundred of these nodes, right? But then think about that. Now you're having to issue that query a hundred times, 101 times, really a hundred times, bring all that data back to the master node, sort that there. So there's, there's a trade-off at some point, right? Like you hit this, this inflection point to where yeah you get more processing power, but now you're spending a lot more time putting results back together. You have network traffic, all that. It's not an easy problem.
0: Yeah. And it really, it also depends on the system too. So like, going back to the Kafka example, right? If you, in my example, I gave you three, three brokers. You actually can't try to create a topic that's has more partitions than you have brokers. Cause Kafka is like, well, where am I supposed to put this? Because in the Kafka world, uh, you know, when you, when you set that up, like it knows that you're supposed to be spreading that across multiple brokers. Um, in like a Postgres world though, it doesn't care, right? Like you could just have the one Postgres server and partition that table or shard it, you know, like however many times you wanted you based off of whatever your structure was And Postgres isn't going to care. Wait, hold up. You just said you can't have more partitions than brokers. You can like you could, I'm sorry. I'm thinking thinking of the replication factor. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. Replication Replication factor. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, don't mix those two up. Yep. Sorry. Uh, Whoa. Thank you for catching that. (laughs) the the replication factor can't exceed the the number of brokers so which makes sense because you know like how could you say like hey replicate this thing across four brokers but i only have three in my environment right but even right. going back to like the constraints that you were talking about with like how you would do those um those partitions cuz in that example that i i gave i like purposely had fewer uh, a lower replication factor than what the partition factor was because if you, in like a Kafka world, for example, if you were to set those things equal, then you really like don't get the economies of scale that you want. Right. Because, because what that would mean is that for every write operation, you're writing to every node and you Mm -hmm. don't want to do that. You really wanted to distribute it out. So like going back to your point in the, in the flip side where it was on the query side, right? Like you you want to, You want to have, uh, you know, some. I'm trying to figure out a way to say it. Like some of the burden be taken up by some of the nodes, but the other nodes available to take on other requests, right? Yeah,
1: and it's interesting. I mean, seeing as how we're talking about Kafka, like one of the things, and especially if you're dealing with big data, you'll probably be looking at Kafka at some point. But one of the things you have to to balance out there too is you create a number of partitions so that you can spread out the rights and, and you get more performance there, but it also allows you to process that data in parallel, right? So most stream processing technologies out there can work on a partition at a time. So um, a stream application could work on more than one partition but you can't have more stream applications working on the data than there are partitions. So for instance, if you were to split up your data into 10 partitions, the most you could paralyze those workloads is having 10 at a time run. And it's because all the data, like, like outlaw said a little while ago, the data is typically stored in a partition based off a keying strategy. So all the data for a particular customer would exist in one partition. So if you were to split that data up across multiple partitions, then you're going to have a problem trying to aggregate data for that customer and that kind of stuff, because you won't have it all going to the same workers.
0: Now here's something to think about too. Like when you get into this type of world where you want to partition your data and everything like it's typically because like you have larger data sets that you're dealing with, you know, for one reason or another, It you know, it might not be at the the size of Facebook or or Google or LinkedIn or whatever, but you know, you still, you still have large sets of data and you want you know, uh, your users or customers or whatever to be able to, you know, not be necessarily be impacted by another, uh, you know, user or customer. Um, but you need to know your data well enough to know like, well, how, like how, how many, uh, partitions might I expect to have in that? Because, uh, you know, like one thing that isn't often thought about, or, you know, I I don't really hear this talked about often, but depending on uh, that system, because it's going to like more often than not, like put a new file on the disc on some disc, uh, be it on the, on the same node or on a different node, like you're adding more files to the system. And, you know, by default, like, let's say you're in like a Linux type of environment, like there's a, a max inode, like there's a max file count that you can have and you can go in and you can set, you can increase that if you, if you know that you're, you need to, but that's where I'm saying like you have to have an idea is like, okay, well, uh, because of this is going to be my partitioning strategy. Then I'm expecting that these will be the total number of partitions that I might have because where it can totally bite you in a Kafka world. And I'm sorry to like keep picking on Kafka, but you know, we love it. Um, because for any any partition, there's actually two files that get written into a Kafka world, and I don't know about the underlying, you know, the underpinnings of like uh, Postgres or something like that, but I gotta imagine that like there might. The point being is that there might be more than one file that's getting written, and so you know, there's like an amplification kind of factor there to worry about. Because, uh, but I'm not sure how, how how Postgres deals with it specifically. But I was th- kind of thinking in my mind, like, oh, I wonder how it deals with like the write ahead logs for that. Type of situation, but I know specifically for Kafka, it, it writes out two files per partition in a directory.
1: But I think I think that's mitigated. Like what you're talking about the inodes, we've run into that before in some stuff that we've done. Um, but I think in Kafka and maybe even in Postgres and a lot of these other ones, it's writing to to single big files, right? Like so, it might write out two files per partition, but it's usually it's not like it's writing out a new file per. Data piece that comes in that gets appended to, to another file set. Well, um, if you
0: were well, well, if you were creating partitions on the fly, yeah, then, then you could get into trouble there. You know, sure. then then based off of your keying mechanism, um, you could get bit there. But where you could also get bit is not only is there the limit on, uh, you know, those files, like literally the inode count there. Um, which you can't like it is configurable in Linux. But um, in the case of like a Kafka, it has a file handle open for each one of those files. Right. So you're reserving, even though it might be a small amount of memory, like you're, you have memory in use just to keep that file handle open because Kafka is going to always keep those file handles open so that it can constantly read and write to them.
1: Yep. So, so to get back around to this whole thing, this, this notion of splitting this data up across different nodes because it's larger. Some examples of these are NoSQL databases and like Hadoop data warehouses, right? So NoSQL databases could be like Mongo or, you know, that's probably the most popular one out there. And then the Hadoop stuff, a lot of times you'll see that they called out data warehouses, but even data lakes, right? Like if, if you're using some sort of technology like that and they also called out that these types of data partitions are typically set up to service either analytical workloads or transactional. You're typically not going to do both with one because you're going to store data differently in those, in those situations. Right. And we've talked about it in the past, like relational databases are usually the hammer or, or the nail, um, They'll no, do the hammer the for hammer. everything, yeah. Because yeah. because you look at you are like, well, I have the data here. I can just run some reports off my transactional database, and you can, um, but it's not going to be the most efficient, and you're probably going to end up hurting your transactional
0: um, throughput if you do that. So it's like the difference that we've discussed between like a OLTP versus OLAP type yes. databases, right? Like columnar versus you know relational type storage mechanisms yep. or row based, I guess.
1: And and so we mentioned it earlier, like when you're doing this partitioning, that all belongs to a single partition, but you can still replicate that stuff, right? For fault tolerance or even for speed. Like when we talked about Postgres in the past, right? Like you have your read replicas out there that, you know, that's perfectly fine. So so it can be used for, for both fault tolerance as well as speed.
0: I mean, if you think about it, like just, uh you know, put your creativity hat on for a moment. Like if all, if you were able to, uh, have three, three replicas of your given partition, right? And each one of those, obviously, you know, by replica, I mean, it's on a physical different machine, right? And maybe in front of that, those three, uh, nodes, there's some kind of a connection manager, right? But if all your rights are able to go to whoever serving as the primary and you could traffic all your reads to the other two, then right away your reads get the benefit of being able to be like potentially twice as fast. Right. Mm -hmm. Because now, you know, depending on what the kind of mechanism is that we're talking about, you know, maybe it's like an elastic search where it can like aggregate the search and, you know, combine them all together or, you know, uh, maybe it's just, you know, some other kind of strategy, like, you know, ticket or customers might go to, you know, an individually, you know, a different particular node. But the point being is that like uh, in that type of situation, you know, this is where the scalability of this whole conversation comes in. Right. Because now you can have some one thing service, the rights and potentially others service, the reads.
1: Yeah. So you don't have discontention for that same, that same stuff. So, this is a outlaw actually alluded to this with Kafka earlier. So a single node can store more than one partition, right? So if you have 10 partitions on your data, all 10 could be on that same node. Five of them could be on there, three of them, whatever. It, It doesn't have to be a fixed number, but this is what's interesting right here is nodes can be leaders for partitions of some of the data and followers on partitions on others. So I think you were mentioning that earlier with Kafka, right? Like, Maybe, maybe broker one is the leader for partition one, right? And then broker two might be the leader for partition two, which would make broker one a follower for partition two, right? So they can, they can sort of alternate who is the leader for doing the rights when they're getting this data.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which now, now going back to that creativity hat situation, now you're distributing your rights. So not yes. only can you distribute your reads, but you can distribute the writes now because, you know, you can have different uh nodes acting as the leader for different partitions,
1: which is which super cool that, concept. Yeah, you're you're kind of unbottling your bottleneck, which used to be how fast your disk could do your reads and writes. But if you're if you're writing to 10 different disks, now now you've reduced that bottleneck, right? Like and, and potentially you could add even more if you needed to. Um, and this is where they did call out that partitioning is independent of replication in terms of what they are. And they said, even the implementation, right? Like different implementations of replication can be used with your partitioning. So more or less, they kind of stand on their own. And I did call out, so I don't typically put in the notes, like a particular diagram or anything, but this one was interesting and it's kind of a busy diagram but if if you have the book, look at Figure Six One, and it shows this whole leader follower scheme to where it's partitioning across multiple nodes, and so you can kind of see, you know, hey, this one's a leader over here, but it's following this, and it, it it is kind of a spaghetti diagram, but it'll help you understand what we're talking about here.
0: It's basically like the same thing that you just described with the two nodes with the in the two partitions, except they've blown it out to four. Nodes and three partitions, lots of lines. Yeah, see, so see, so you have a lot of a lot of lines there. Yep. And
1: so now here's what's interesting. So we've talked about what partitioning is. We talked about what it's supposed to try and solve. But here is the key part, and this is this is sort of what throws the wrench in it because it all sounds amazing. What we've been saying here, right? Like you have these partitions, it's faster. You can you can grow. But the goal in partitioning is to try and spread the data around as evenly as possible. Because if it's not spread around evenly, it's called skewed and skew causes problems.
0: Yeah. This is where like, so the, the, you know, to, to so far in this conversation, I'd mentioned like, well, maybe you would like partition by your customer, like in the, in the fortune 500 example, but that might not be the strategy you want to use because let's say in that, in that example, not all of your fortune 500s are created equally. So, you know, fortune 500 company that ranks number one on that list might be a lot busier than the company that ranks 500 on that list. And, you know, so if the data was like, I don't know, number, you know, that, that, that the employees, right. Uh, you know, just the list of the employees, they were coming in for a given, um, uh, company in that scenario, then obviously the company that has the largest employees is going to get, is going to, the, the, it's going to be skewed to them, which they, they actually call it a hot spot in the partitioning strategy, because you're going to be, end up reading and writing to that partition more than you would one of the other ones. So you typically want to come up with a, a keying strategy. Like, again, I'm, I'm coming at this from like You know, I, I pretty much focused entirely on this, uh, this chapter coming like from a Kafka point of view, which is probably a fault. But, um, you know, in a a Kafka world, you want that keying strategy to be, uh, like deterministic, right? So that, you know, you, you, you want to have a keying strategy that makes sense. It, It can't be random because in order for the read to work, it has to be able to deterministically know which partition to go to for it but you want that, that keying strategy to, to have something about it that would cause it to spread over the data. So for example, I think in the book, they gave an example of, let's say that your keying strategy was on date, right? Well, and, and let's just say it was just like you were, you were getting all of the website, uh, all of the web logs from Amazon or Google and you're, you're, as as they're streaming those logs to you, you're writing them in and you're partitioning based on date. But then what that means is that like your your t- partition would have a hot spot on whatever the given day is because that's a hundred percent where all of your rights are going. And if all of your rights are only being served by that single node, then you know that one thing, that one node is getting a beating for that day. Right. And then the next right. day it's another node and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And now your, your reads might be distributed assuming you were to do multi-day reads in that scenario. But if you were to only do a single day read, then again, you end up uh, hammering just one node. And so that's why you, you want to try to come up with a strategy that, that evenly spreads that.
1: Yeah. And, and to call it out these hot spots, that's where everything, the, all the is going, right. But that, Another thing to keep in mind, typically, if you're running systems like this where you have multiple nodes, you're paying a decent chunk of money for these nodes. Right. So uh, if you got VM spun up in a Kubernetes cluster or whatever, and you got these beefy servers there, these hotspots make it to where you're using one node at 90 percent utilization and the other ones are sitting around doing nothing. Right. So so really, the goal is, is to spread it out to where. You're not bottlenecking anything, and you're utilizing the CPU and the and the I.O. bandwidth that you have, right? So that is why you want to distribute this stuff. And so here's where they start. I love it that this book does this. Like, hey, well, one way to get around this is to do this, right? And they say, hey, you can try and use um, putting data on random nodes. And then what I love about this book is they're like, okay, so that's great, but let me tell you the problem with that, right? So they walk you down because you'll go,
0: oh, yeah, that sounds good. And yeah, then – I mean that's pretty much the problem that I described a moment ago, right? Because right. then like you, you create – like let's say if you were like, okay, fine, I'll just create like a random, uh, you know, universally universally unique ID, right? A, a, U, a UUID or a GUID in like a C-sharp world. Then um, – you know, okay, fine. You you created this globally unique identifier and you use that as your keying mechanism, but now how do you deterministically like recreate that based off of the data? You can't. So right. now it's, when you want to read this record, you're like, oh, let me read every partition I've got to go find it. <laughs> exactly.
1: And that's what he's saying there is is the biggest thing. And, and, you know, that needs to sink in a little bit. If you can't determinist, deterministically know Where that data is stored, like which partition on which node, then that means you have to issue a query to every single node to see if they, Hey, do you have it? So now it might be faster, but you're actually wasting processing power. Because now you're making all your nodes do work when really you should be able to go straight to a node and say, hey, give me this
0: record. I, I think I think this might have been the part of the book where they had talked about an example of um, like uh, a dictionary or an encyclopedia set of books where like if you had each letter of the alphabet as a separate book, right, then – you know, on the surface, you might think like, okay, well, that sounds fine, right? It's deterministic, right? I know that if the, if the topic starts with this particular letter, I know exactly where to go and find it, you know? <clears throat> and, um, but the problem is, is that some letters are more, uh, common and more heavily used in the English alphabet than they are, than other letters are. So then you're going to have hotspots. On, like, the letter T or S or whatever. So, like, those books might be like super thick, but a letter like Z or, you know, uh, Q might be a really thin book, right? And so, the idea is that you want all of these books to be the same. And so, even in the case of that single letter, you might actually split that out into multiple books to be like uh, T A through T H is in this book and T I. Uh, through, you know, some uh, TZ is in another book, you know, whatever, right? Yep. Um. So, so that you can like distribute the, distribute those loads, but then if you were to think about what you were saying before about having it, um, like randomly, if you didn't deterministically know, okay, well, this topic starts with T, I know to go to this particular book, right? If you instead just had a random GUID for that book, uh, or, or, you know, for that, for that particular topic and all of your books were now just like, you know, this set of GUIDs are here or this set of GUIDs are there and this set of GUIDs are there. And now I'm like, okay, go, go find, um, I'm going to change letters and say like, okay, uh, find me the book for this uh, particular Lamborghini. And you're going to like, oh, I guess I have to go hunt through every encyclopedia I have in order to find the book that has the article on that particular topic. Right. And that's why this, this point about the King strategy needs to be deterministic is so crucial because in order to take advantage of the scalability, you need to be able to pinpoint the direction you want to go to for the read. And I beat that dead horse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think, I think they'll understand that. (sighs) This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for increasing visibility into your Postgres SQL databases.
0: Create custom drag and drop Postgres dashboards within seconds so you can visualize highly granular data and custom metrics in real time. Datadog's
1: 450 plus turnkey integrations make
0: it easy to correlate
1: metrics from your Postgres servers with other services throughout your environment.
0: Datadog provides real-time service maps, algorithmic alerts, and end-to-end application tracing so you can monitor your systems proactively and detect issues before your customers do. And boy, does that matter, right? So, you know, when we talk about Datadog here, like, uh, you, you ever heard of that whole thing about, like, a single pane of glass mm-hmm. to, like, see all of your, your stats of what's going on? Datadog is is the king of this when it comes to monitoring and they've got how to articles and documentations and blogs on like any topic you want. And we've been you know, pretty much focused in like uh database type topics here in this particular episode, as we talk about partitioning and whatnot, they have, you know, if you wanted to do Postgres, Kafka, Cassandra, whatever it is, they, they have, you said it, 450 plus turnkey integrations. All of those technologies that I just said are in there. Specifically, like, okay, Postgres, just to, to monitor the vacuum processes, just to, you know, see how it's, it's doing that, you know, in terms of like, uh, you know, compact, compaction. They have, they have everything. Data, DataDog is just amazing. I'm telling you, if you haven't already given their blog, if nothing else, give their blog a view and you'll be thoroughly impressed. I promise.
1: Yeah, and if you go out and check out their blog, then you'll probably also want to go ahead and start monitoring today with a 14-day trial, free trial, and receive a free Datadog t-shirt after creating just one dashboard. So go ahead and visit datadoghq.com slash codingblocks. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash codingblocks to learn more about how you can start monitoring your databases with Datadog.
0: Okay, well, uh, you know it's that part of the show where I like to ask you to do me a favor, and now this is the part where like it gets weird, right? Because like in the past, I don't know, man, Jay Z and Alan they would do stuff like, "Hey Welcome listener, uh, we That's would right. greatly appreciate it if I, you know," and it's just like I ain't got time for that. So it's no time of the show, no, no, yeah, I can't, I can't do this radio, you know, late night. You're listening to the sweet soul, smooth sounds of WW net No. So we got a call in from Michael
1: outlaw yeah. <laughs> he would like to request that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so if you would, we would greatly appreciate it if you would take time out of your busy day to leave us a review. We, we really do appreciate reading them. Um, you know, every time we, we read them, they put a smile on our face. Uh, it really doesn't mean a lot. And you know, that's your way of like, you know, Hey, if you ever thought like, man, I'd like to buy these guys a, a coffee or a beer Uh, you know, this would be your way of being able to virtually do that for us, you know? So, uh, with that, we head into my favorite portion of the show survey says, all right. So, uh, we kind of can't do this because, uh, Jay-Z isn't here and it would be weird if you had, you know, we're the only one, Alan.
1: I think I'm going to be the winner today. I'm pretty certain that well, I'm going to win today.
0: And yet, you're going to lose because I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that,
1: that kind of stinks, man. I'm going to lie. <laughs>
0: that's, a, that's an extra kind of sting right there, isn't it? That's an extra kind of hurt. Yeah. But <laughs> um, now, because I was just thinking, like, you know, we'll, we'll hold off on doing that one until Jay-Z is back with us. But what we can do... Is that we were, uh, uh, you know, thinking about like, well, what could the survey be for this particular episode? And I would hate to like not do this one since you know it is so specific to the topic. So here's your survey for this episode. Have you ever had to partition your data? And your choices are ever, more like always, or on occasion. It's just another tool in my toolbox, or once. I don't want to talk about it or nope. Does that mean my data set is small or nope, not my job. I, I'm curious on
1: this one. I, I really am interested in finding out how many people have to deal with this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, cause it's actually kind of surprising, you know, like uh, I know that like we might be tempted to think like, no, probably, probably not, but we do, but we do. Yeah. So, This episode is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern
1: applications faster and easier. Whether you're developing a personal project or managing larger workloads, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing
0: solutions. You can get started on Linode today with a $100 free credit for listeners of coding blocks. You can find all the details at Linode.com slash coding blocks. Wait, Lin- wait, wait. Did you say a hundred dollars? I did. And that's incredible, right? That's crazy. Like, you were talking about like developing your personal projects. I mean, how much easier is that? If you got a hundred dollar free credit to get started with it. Right. And Linode has data centers around the world with s- the same simple and consistent pricing, regardless of the location. It's yeah, it- super easy to get started.
1: Yeah, totally. And that's one of the things like we've, we've used Linode and just their dashboards and, and the integration, the ability to go in and launch things quickly and easily get things spun up and, and turned off as quickly and easily as you want, makes it to where you can get started and running on the platform in no time.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you, you honestly aren't joking because it's like, super, you, they actually have a marketplace you can go to the marketplace and you say, you know what? I, I want to spin up uh, a Postgres server and you can just click a button and you got a Postgres server right in, in the Linode cloud. Super simple. You want Splunk or you want heaven help you. If you wanted to build your own Jenkins server, but you know, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe GitHub actions just doesn't do it for you. And you're like, you know what? I deserve some pain. In, I mean, uh, luxury, or what would it be? Uh at any rate, you decided to go Jenkins. And you know, I'm not gonna fault you for it. You did it. You did it. And you know, kudos. Uh you'll you'll be a better better person for it. Um, I think. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah, definitely. You definitely will be a better person for it. So at any rate, the point is Linode has got a super simple platform, a super simple interface to work with. They've got Kubernetes right there at your fingertips, uh, Linux virtual machines. To save you money, like you're not, you, you can spread that $100 credit pretty far. Yeah. So go ahead and choose
1: the data center nearest you. You'll also receive twenty four seven, three hundred sixty five 365 days a year, human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. So you don't have to be a huge corporate customer to get that kind of love. You can choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can use your $100 in credit on S3 compatible object storage, which will go a long way. Manage Kubernetes or even more.
0: If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash coding blocks and click on the create free account button to get started. All right. So we talked about the problems with these random
1: keys, right. And what they cause you to do, having to go out and query everything. So one of the ways that you might be able to solve this problem and, and outlaw basically talked about it right before, because he jumped ahead. Oh, sorry. And I, I couldn't find the kill switch on his mic beforehand, but I disabled this it. whole <laughs> partitioning by a key range. Right. So um now this is interesting because they actually go into multiple different ways about this though, is You can assign a continuous range of keys on a particular partition, right? So like you said earlier, maybe you do T-A through T-H, right? Like that's one way to do it. And and he mentioned the the Yeah, It was, yeah. I mean, you were literally just ahead of it. Um, and, And so he already talked about all the benefits of it, right? Like you know exactly where to go. If you're looking for a particular Lamborghini, you know exactly which book to go to because it's sorted by the letters, right? Um, now this is what's kind of interesting. So you can either have these partition boundaries be determined manually. So somebody go in and set it because, Hey, we know our data, right? You got a set of data scientists or people that are really familiar with it and they set them, or you can have the
0: system actually choose it for you, which is kind of cool, honestly. So this would be like going back to the book example, like somebody, had to decide, like, oh, hey, this book is getting a little too thick. Let's split this off here. Right. And T.I. starts a new book. Yep. Um, I'm sure there's a rap joke in here somewhere. I, I, I was thinking of searching can, for it. And I'm like, it's did T.I. actually start a book? <laughs> like, he did. <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> if you were aware, but he did. Don't oh, that's think. interesting. I did and, not uh, know that. It was the Encyclopedia you know, Britannica <laughs> series. It starts at TI goes to TZ. Awesome.
1: Well, some of the, some of these databases that actually do automatic partitioning are big table. That's Google's. No. Yeah. Big table is Google, um, H rethink DB and MongoDB. They all will do that. Um, and the partitions keep these keys sorted, to allow for fast lookups. We talked about this back in an episode when we were talking about SS tables and LSM trees. And this is a way to make sure that not only can you go to the partition, you're looking for the data, but once you get there, you can get that data super fast.
0: Now, we need to like just focus for a moment on this, because this part here was kind of like, mind blown, right? Because you think about creating an index for your data, Right. And now we're getting super meta because now we're going to create indexes for the index to say like, mm-hmm. well, we've split the index apart, you know, dynamically and decided like, you know, A and B are in over here and C through D are over there. Right. And, and, oh, uh, we decided to split, you know, we had EF and G together, but we split those apart into three separate ones. Right. Like th- it's like super cool that, that is happening, but totally, you know, getting meta now, like, okay, we're going to index your index. It's like, this is like, if exhibit had to like define your database, you know, this is what would happen. Yo dog, I heard you like indexes. So I'll put an index in your index. That's
1: what happens. <laughs> hey, but I think, I think by this point now though, you're probably more convinced that a partition is a little mini database, right? Because it's stored its own little indexes on indexes and, yeah. I mean,
0: it's crazy. Okay. The, the I mean, I will, I will, I will buy that because yes. of, of the overhead required to, to do it. But I still, in my mind, okay. like, I'm thinking of like, you no know, take backsies. The one no. thing. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were going to engage no take backsies. Right. I'm done. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I
1: can't possibly right. undo that. That's right. You're there now. All right. So we have gotten him to admit it. So um, <laughs> so the the other thing that was interesting, so we talked about this earlier, like if you were to try and use timestamp as, as your partitioning strategy, it wouldn't work, right? Because you're hot spotting one thing. Well, one of the things that they said is Okay, well, let's say that, and this is big in IoT, right? Like, if you have sensors, like, I think Outlaw you used to work for uh, a company that did like air conditioning, HVAC stuff, and they had sensors all over the place, right? To find out when systems were, were failing, to find out what the temperatures were, all that kind of stuff, right? One way that you can handle this is okay, well, you have data coming in that's time sensitive. Just take the sensor name and prefix it to that timestamp. And then that way, You've got the sensor data on their own nodes and partitions, but you still have it ordered in a way that you can get to that data quickly. Um,
0: well, I thought it would still be like it would be distributed a little bit more evenly, right? Did I misread this part because like it was a combination of the sensor name plus the date, and so Correct. like that one sensor might actually be split across multiple partitions.
1: It could. It totally could. What they were saying is if the ordering of this was important to where, like, let's say that you're querying a day's worth of data at once by doing it this way, by putting the sensor name plus the timestamp on the end of it as your key, then you'll be able to run aggregates because all that data will live on a single partition when you go to pull it. But the pro- what the thing that it fixes is let's say that you have a thousand sensors you don't want all those thousand sensors to be on one node. So when you go to query and aggregate that stuff, it's it's going to destroy a single node. So this will allow you to distribute that query across multiple nodes where that sensor data would live.
0: But what am I missing here then? Because uh, in that scenario, like you might as well only have just the sensor name. And like, why do you need the date? Like at that point, because I thought the purpose was to spread it evenly across all of the partitions. And that's why you were combining the two.
1: Well, that's actually what they say. The problem with this is you end up pot spotting some things as well, because you're putting a lot of that same data on a single node. So the difference is if you were to do it just by the date time, then all data goes on a single node. Right. If you do it by the node plus the time, then each node's data is going on a single one, and it keeps those timestamps together. So, you know, it's not mm. perfect, but it's a little bit better.
0: I guess when I'm, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm probably thinking of like if you were to. Uh, maybe create some kind of a hash out of that, but you probably wouldn't want to do that, create any kind of a hash off of a timestamp. That'd be an awful idea, but that's probably like where, where in my mind I was getting confused with thinking that like uh, the combination of the two would spread it across. Because otherwise, you know, if you, if you had all of a single IOT devices data going to a, sin, a single partition, then your assumption is that all of your IOT devices are equal and are, are going to like equally, submit data. And I don't know if that would always be the case.
1: No, they wouldn't. And that's good. Actually, one thing to point out is I said timestamp, it's not the whole timestamp. So you would do sensor data pl- plus maybe year, month, day, hour and minute, right? You, you probably wouldn't go all the way down in a second. So a single sensor um, for the same minute, all the data would live on one. Maybe for the next minute, it jumps to another node. So okay. by doing it this way, you're jumping around to multiple partitions, right? Now, here's what's crazy. That might solve your write problem, right? That may actually distribute your writes out pretty well across all the different partitions for all your different sensors. What stinks, though, is now you want to go run a query for maybe one sensor, Um Well, maybe it doesn't live on the same node all the time, or maybe you want to query the data for all your sensors. And now you got to go across all nodes. Like there's all kinds of weird problems that come in to where you kind of have to know your use case of how you're going to use that data after you write it to know how you need to distribute it for later access.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a total fair point. So going back to the earlier point about like knowing your data as to like how you would partition it, you know, I I was coming at it from the point of view of like the file handles and things like that, but you know, knowing how you would want to read that data would matter, you know, as part of your partitioning strategy, like you said, you know, cause especially if you know, if you knew that you had to do like, uh, aggregations across it, you know, then that's going to, uh, Factor in on how you might want to distribute that, uh, you know, that data across the partitions.
1: Right, because like we talked about earlier, if you have inefficient or or ineffective partitioning for what your aggregate use cases afterwards, you may be issuing the query against all nodes, which takes away from what you're trying to do in the first place. Right,
0: and I'll- yet somehow Elasticsearch pulls off all of this, and it's just magic. I Somehow. don't even know how it, how it managed to, to do what it does. It's just.
1: Yeah. So they, they talk about it in here. That's interesting. So like one of the ways that they sort of help with hot spotting is you have the ability in Elasticsearch to have like sort of these warm or hot nodes where your most recent data that you're going to query a lot lives. Then you're going to have a colder node where you put stuff that doesn't get queried as often and you don't care if it's as fast So they have ways to mitigate that, that they've thought about, like your different data nodes have different settings that you can do. And typically you'll store those on different types of drives too, right? So your cold data, you might put on a slow spinning drive, your hot data, you might have on some sort of, you know, new SSD or something.
0: Well, Well, I was going to say, like, I I use uh, only SSDs for everything. So like, you know, just raids of, uh, you know, raid arrays of SSDs and, you know, in the last episode I had learned about this, uh, new SSD from Corsair that had like, you know, amazing stats on it. So That's did fair. you, did you realize by the way, like a uh, total tangent that you can get that SSD as an eight terabyte? No, I didn't.
1: How that much is, is that insane. thing? insane.
0: Like the, well, it's hard to tell because it's not showing up on, on, um, uh, let's grayed out. So the four terabyte version of it. Is $680. That's not terrible. Maybe I can't. Oh, I, I was able to collect the eight. <laughs> 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 Woo! 15,
1: 15
0: oh, money. How much is it? You're pretty close, man. You are, you are pretty close. You are $50 off.
1: Oh yeah. That's it, is, it is
0: 1450. But I could order it now, and it'll be here in, uh, you know, six days. So, Dude, yeah. get two of those and put them in a
1: raid? Oh, my goodness.
0: <laughs> like, like, that's oh, the stuff man. dreams are
1: made of. Right? Uh, it's ridiculous. But uh, in all honesty, I mean, in enterprise systems, they they spend some money on some SSDs, right? Like, And they will raid them on the enterprise-type stuff. But, you know, that's your true crazy Kafka brokers out there, they're probably running some sick hardware that
0: cost, you know, more than a house. So custom made hardware, right? That. Seriously. I mean, um, you remember like the, the do you ever see like the first pictures of the hardware that Google ran on, where it was just like, whatever they could get their hands on. Oh no. You know, like when they were early, 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 Bootstrap early starting days. Like before you'd ever right. heard the name. Right. Yeah. Uh, it was like every piece of random hardware that they could get their hands on, like just building out the system. It was That's pretty, so awesome. this is pretty interesting. Let's see if I can find a picture of that while you're.
1: All right. So our next one is what if you partitioned by hashing the key? So this is one of the ways to avoid the skew and the hotspots, right? So, um, And this is actually what a lot of systems use to try and get around the problem. So what they say, and there there are some really interesting things all throughout this entire section here. So a good hashing function will take the data and it'll make it evenly distributed, which sounds perfect, right? Um, One of the things that they call out here, and, and I'd venture to say a lot of people who are hung up on security probably think about this a lot. But hashing algorithms don't have to be cryptographically strong, not for keying purposes, right? So you're not going to need the latest, you know, uh, AES two fifty six encryption, or it, it doesn't matter. You don't need that. You just need to be able to use even an MD five hash is perfectly fine because it doesn't need to be, you know, secure. Um. Additionally, they do call out Cassandra uses Murmur three. Voldemort, which until I read this book, I'd never even heard of Voldemort uses Fowler, Null, Vo, which I'd never heard of that either. Um, so just to give you an idea, like MD5 is perfectly fine for this. Mongo uses it and that system has done pretty well, as far as I know.
0: I'm so afraid you're going to say that other system a third time and then phew, all, all right. right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, I I just sent you a, a picture. out i'll include it in the show notes as well the early days of google oh that's amazing the first computer that at stanford that was used to house it was a custom made enclosure made from mega blocks
1: yeah aka the off-brand legos right i was thinking like Mike R G is gonna be so upset (laughs) (laughs) Uh, google is now dead to him
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah isn't that so cool though there you That's go. pretty
1: amazing. Yeah, we'll we'll have a link to that in the show notes because that uh, that is pretty cool to look at. I would just right, assume
0: so, that I would melt the 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 mega blocks if I were to try to like. I, I would have never thought like, hey, let me build this. I would have I would have chosen. I would have built. I would have like cut some wood first, right? Before let I was let me like, build hey, this out of plastic, me, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> let me melt my homework assignment. <laughs> yeah, no, not so much. Hey, so one of the cool things that they pointed out here that I never really would have even thought about was they said that not all programming languages have suitable hashing algorithms.
0: Or I thought it was that, that not all of them are the same though, right now no, they're necessarily
1: suitable. It, no, because- no suitable. The, so they're not all the same, but here's why. So it says because the hash will change for the same key. Oh, so right. this, this is the part where it was like, what yeah it, it doesn't even make sense so Java their object dot hash code and Ruby's object hash were called out specifically they will not for the same object won't necessarily create the same hash each time you call it and what what you said earlier you need deterministic keys to know where you're going so if your hash changes and you're and you're using that as your key on where to put it That'll kind of mess you up if you go to look for that record next time, right?
0: Yeah, I I thought well, but I didn't read that. though. It was like, um, I I don't know enough about the Java object code. I just assumed that like maybe you know that's an instance specific thing. So like you know the memory address might play a part in it because like you know in in like a .Net world, there's a I forget what it's called though. Where like if you were to to um. Implement your own, uh, I equalable or whatever, like quality, you know, type of check. Right. You, you know, like one of the things you can start with is the hash code to say like, Hey, are you even, is this even the exact same thing? So that's, so that's why I, I took that. I mean, you know, that's where I thought that they were, they were going with some of that. But, um, also in my mind, I was thinking like, well, you know, depending on the, uh, You know, what you, how you decide to hash, you might want to, um, if you know that you're going to have clients cross language, then you want to have a consistent hash deterministic hashing algorithm that is available to both of, you know, to every one of your languages because you could pick, end up picking, you know, some, some operation, you know, uh, hashing algorithm that might only be available to Java and then all your.net clients, for example, can't, can't query or Python clients, whatever they might be. Right. So, so two things,
1: because that, that reminds me of something that actually happened. I'll share it in a second, but I think what you just said, and it made me realize, I think the reason why the object.hash code in Java isn't consistent. And I think it's exactly what you said. It's a memory thing, right? So in Java, you have to be very care- careful about whether or not you're doing like this equals something or this dot equals something, because it's actually checking to see, is this the same exact object or is this object have the same value, right? And those are two very different things. And that's probably why the hash code's different, because they want to check to see, are you referencing the same object in memory? Um, so that's probably a very good call out. The other thing that you just said about cross language. So we ran into this in Kafka and it was really interesting. So we were trying to do deterministic keying, like what you said. And we, and we used the same uh, hashing algorithm between both C sharp and Java. And guess what we ran into to where it actually messed it up. The difference between big Indian and little Indian, um, uh, microprocessor architectures, it created a different value on a different system. So you actually have to be aware of some stuff like that. Even if the algorithm looks like it's the same, you might have some architectural things that will throw a wrench into your
0: plans. And that's, that's fun to find. Another big one to think about too, depending on like how you're going to do your, your keying. And and then subsequently, if you're going to use those keys to create hashes is do it doesn't it matter if you have a hash collision, because if, for example, if you just, you know, you said Mongo uses MD5, but if you just used an MD5, then you can have a hash collision like where, you know, for those that are wondering what I mean by that, like the idea is you could have two different pieces of data you run them through the same algorithm and they could produce the same result now it's supposed to be rare but i mean you know, if you look at md5 like technically it is possible and you know if the data that you are you know trying to key is like super sensitive right then you don't you might not want like allen's uh hash to equal the same as mine. And then Alan is able to see my data or vice versa. Right. So
1: that's a really important thing to call out there is maybe it won't, it it might not matter if you have hash collisions, if you're just using it to determine which partition to write to. But if you're trying to use that as a unique identifier for your record, true. Yeah. That could be an issue, right? So you do need to be aware of that. If you're not using something that is, is going to guarantee you basically unique results, then you could have that problem.
0: Yeah, That's a fair point. That's a fair point. And so all, but all of this goes back under the same advice that we've said multiple times now about like, know your data, know your data and your use cases for how you plan to read and write it. And, you know, if you just take some time up front to just think through some of that, it can pay dividends later on. Totally.
1: Um, so the next thing they say is these part you can set up these partition boundaries which we talked about earlier right like um you know a through b or whatever um you can do this and it can even be done pseudo randomly they call it consistent hashing but they say that consistent hashing doesn't work well for databases so maybe perfectly fine for things like kafka not going to work for postgres or something like that mongo whatever Um, it says while the hashing of the keys buys good distribution, you lose the ability to do these range queries on known nodes. So now your range queries all have to run against all the nodes, which is what we talked about earlier, right? So if you know exactly what node to go to, awesome. If you don't know what node to go to, then you have to query them all. And now you're potentially wasting processing and it, maybe it's faster. Maybe it's way more inefficient. You know, you kind of have to know your data.
0: Yeah. If you're, if you're, um, you know, just to expand on that, that example that I gave earlier with the Lamborghini, if instead of your index being based on, you know, letters of the alphabet and you just simply being able to pull all the L's, you know, immediately start there. If instead, um, your, your keying mechanism was based on license plates. Then you'd have to exactly. query every, you'd have to look at every license plate and say, is this one a Lamborghini? No. Is this right. one?
1: No. That's a, that's a great example. Um, yeah, it, it's it's crazy how that works. And that's why it doesn't work well for databases, right? Because databases, you're typically looking up data by properties. And, and if it's some sort of random hash property, it's not going to do you much good. Um, they even said, and this is interesting too. They said some databases don't even allow for range queries on the primary key, so like your your hash or whatever. So, Riak, Couchbase, and Whoa. Baltimore.
0: Oh, you said it. There we it go. It. It's over. He's gonna. Um, him and Beetlejuice are gonna show up now,
1: dude. And this, I love it that they go so deep in this book. So this is where they say Cassandra actually kind of does it really well because they do a combination of keying strategies. So. The first column, they use the first column of a compound key for hashing. And then the other columns in that compound key are used for sorting the data. So that gives you sort of the best of both worlds there.
0: Um, Now, I, I, I was trying to wrap my head around what they meant here, though. And like, I, I didn't dig into it enough. So, uh, you know, apologies there. Because I was trying to think, like, okay, well, what does that mean? Like, what if the piece of data that I know and want to, to return is the first thing? Like, is it, it's kind of lost. Like, you can't sort on that then? Yeah. I Well, I, I mean, I guess you're
1: probably right. So, they call it out here. They say this means you can't do a range query over the first portion of the of the key, or in this case, I put K Yeah, I have a the K. of the K, <laughs> but if you specify a fixed key for the first column, then you can do a range query over the other column. So the way that data is stored in Cassandra is a little bit different, right? So yeah, I don't know, man. I'm not sure exactly how useful that is. I mean, I know Cassandra is, it, it's popular because you can just put massive amounts of data on it and it's horizontally scaled out, right? But I guess it makes sense that you wouldn't want to query every single node in a Cassandra cluster to find to find some data. So, you, and if I remember right, that is the whole thing with Cassandra: is you're typically going straight to a record or a set of records, and then you can sort it within there. So, yeah, I don't know, man.
0: And hey, you know, uh, you know, shout out to a past sponsor because DataStax is all about Cassandra, Mm-hmm. right? I just, I just haven't had to like, so as I was reading that part though, I just haven't had an opportunity yet to dive into Cassandra. Like we have other storage technologies. So that's why I was, when I was reading that part, I'm like, well, okay.
1: Well, they gave, they gave an example here and I forgot about this. So maybe this will help out a little bit. So I'm just going to read what I wrote. So an example would be storing all posts on social media by a user ID. So that user ID is your hashing column. And then the updated date is an additional column in the compound key. Then you can easily go retrieve all the posts by that user sorted by the post date. Right. So yep. that makes sense if you think about it like that. Right. Um, especially if you have, if you, well, I mean, I guess anybody, like if you're a Facebook, you know, you can go to Outlaws thing and then say, Hey, show me all his posts sorted. And and you can do that fast. You can do the same thing for mine or anybody's. Um,
0: I guess where I got tripped up on that though, is because when I thought about like compound keys, maybe they don't mean compound keys in the same way I thought about it. Cause I really, and this is might be where I went wrong because I read compound key. And in my mind, I translated that to composite key. Oh, and so like, you know, and by composite key, um, Just to like define what I mean by that term is that like instead of if instead of only having like one thing that uniquely identifies the record, maybe you have multiple things that identify it. So it's not enough to just know my first name, but you'd have to know my first name, middle name, last name, you know, like all of those things together might form uh, you know, be used together as a composite key. And maybe that's not what they mean here in the com in the case of compound key.
1: Yeah. It sounds like it's different. It sounds like the first portion is truly the key to get to that partition. And the next one is to sort that data on that partition.
0: So that's where I got tripped up. Cause I, I saw that too, but then I'm like, well, then if that's the case, why would you call it compound key? Cause those other parts really aren't technically a key. They're just other attributes of the data. Are they not? Um, yeah, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Maybe, maybe the difference here is maybe the difference here is that I'm probably, I think I'm answering my own question. Cause maybe, maybe the difference is that Cassandra, like if you go back to your date example, you can, you, you know, some of my partition data might be on one partition, for a given day. And some of my other data might be on another one for a given day. I uh, no, don't, I don't think so. No. yeah. I mean, because what this implies is you can easily go
1: and find all your posts order by date, right? Because like, we can get to your key because we can hash your, your name or whatever, and get to that partition and order that data. What you can't do is you can't say, Hey, show me all the newest posts. Show me the top 100 newest posts because you can't do a range query on that because the things are actually stored by the hash of your name or whatever, or the user ID. So, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things about Cassandra that I've always found interesting. It's very much like a key value store in that regard, in terms of how you get straight to the data. So,
0: Well, so I'm positive that somebody listening to this has some serious uh, Cassandra chops and they can explain it to us in the uh, show notes for this episode. If you were to go to block, co- blocks dot net slash episode one seventy one, and you could give us the explanation there, and not only are you doing us a favor of explaining it, but you'd be entering yourself in for a chance to win a copy of the book. I like what you did there, sir. Thank you.
1: All right, so. Hashing is used to help prevent these hotspots, but there are situations where they can still occur. So we still haven't found the perfect end-all, be-all solution, right? So they gave the example of what if you had a popular social media personality that had millions of followers? Such well, as myself. Such as yourself. Thank you. All your data, if we were to say that whole user ID was on the one partition, all your data is on one partition. And I thought you were going somewhere
0: else with that. <laughs> Oh, I, I
1: don't know where I would have been going.
0: It, the, because of the way you pause, I, I thought for sure you were going to say all your data are belong to us. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, that was like episode thirteen. I that was
0: think, long. So. That was a long time ago. Yeah,
1: that's been a minute. So here's what stinks: most systems cannot handle that type of skew. That skew, um, which kind of makes sense. Like you told it, hey, we're going to partition by this key, so that key goes there. So. What they said here is, in the case that something like this happens, it's up to the application itself, so your code, to try and fix the SKU. Um, and and they gave some examples of ways that they do it, like appending a random two-digit number to the key that would spread that record out over 100 partitions, right? So outlaw-01, outlaw-02, or whatever. So every piece of data that came in, you put that that random two-digit number on there and and you're doing that in your
0: application code. Now, I don't know if this is... Uh, this is probably going to be controversial. Um, and, uh, you know, you heard Joe say it here, but... <laughs> <laughs> uh, awesome. Uh, Bust. Yeah. But, you know, I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, in this scenario, there's nothing to say that, you know, one strategy has to be your end all be all for every use case. And so maybe your uh, celebrity data or whatever that, you know, that has like the high uh, follower count or whatnot, maybe they use, they're often their own set of partitions that have their own strategy. And, you know, you and I, are in a different strategy. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big one. Don't worry. But you know, (laughs) that's right. Yeah. We'll be, we'll be okay. (laughs) You know, but, but, but honestly though, like think about it, you know, like there's the 99 percenters and then there's the one percenters you like in terms of like, uh, the, the follower counts and whatnot. Right. That, I don't know, maybe, maybe it makes sense, but also maybe it's probably a horrible idea. I mean, look, anytime you have like a fork in the road in your, in
1: your code logic, we both know it like, it's really hard to maintain and hard to reason about, Hey, why did this happen over here? And, 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 and Oh, going back to this, appending the two digit number, that's amazing for spreading out your rights. But then you introduce the problem that we talked about before to where, Hey, if I want to see all outlaws posts, because you know, the whole world wants to see them, you now have to query 100 nodes to get all of his posts as opposed to the one node that you would have had to have done earlier. So it's a trade off, right? Like again, you really, we've said it multiple times. You have to know your data and the use cases and how that stuff is going to, to get used.
0: I mean, even this scenario, this option here, as well as the one I just described, uh, you know, both of them have this one pain point of like where when you decide that like there's this uh inflection point where that person crosses a threshold and now you need to m- move them to this other strategy, right? Well, do you do you just forget the old data or do you move it along too? Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming mm-hmm. that's what you would do, right? But you know, your use case may vary. Uh so you know, you you would have that kind of a problem with the migration thing. So You know, like in my mind, as I was reading that part, I was kind of thinking of Twitter, you know, specifically, right? Because, you know, you you create your Twitter account and, you know, things are slowly building over time. And then, you know, eventually you start gaining momentum and blowing up, right? And, and then now, you know, oh, we got to change the whole strategy for how we, we handle Michael's, uh, Twitter account. Cause of course it, it's a right. big deal. I don't know if you're, right. if you're following, right. <clears throat> you know, so, so I mean, I, I specifically had, I don't know. I don't, do you do that? Like do you, when you're reading something, do you like immediately try to relate it to something you already know as you're reading it? Oh, totally. Uh, like,
1: like the Twitter thing is great because there's a, there's a big difference. It, it, Twitter pops into my mind a lot because when you look at how the system operates, it's got to be super hard because you have the the feed, right, where you just get new, new posts that come in nonstop, right? And that's one sort of data. That's just the timestamps when they come in, right? And then if, like you said, you click on outlaw and you want to see his, there's no way that data is indexed the same way that that, that main feed is because sorting by a timestamp is way different than sorting by somebody's key and then timestamp. So we've talked about this in the past too. Like a lot of times these systems that that you interact with, especially when the data gets large and you need things to be fast, that data is stored in multiple different formats and multiple different technologies to give you what you want. Like, so, so we just talked about clicking on your name to see your posts you have your main feed to where it just comes in. What if you do a search now, right? Like that's also a different storage mechanism more than likely. So, I
0: mean, it's just, but even to create that feed though, specifically to Twitter could be a big deal because, you know, whoever, you know, the, the celebrity is like, if everybody's following uh, Dwayne, the rock Johnson, for example, right? Like as it, as, Like, let's say, for example, I don't know how many followers he has on any given platform, but let's just say, for example, to pick on him, if he had like 5 million followers, that's probably too little. If he had, you know, 50 million followers, I don't know what's realistic here. Um, (laughs) so, so, uh, you know, that means that like as you're pulling up your feed as Alan, right? As one of those 50 million followers, you know, you're wanting to query his you know index wherever his data is but so are the other 50 million followers that he has too right so you know that that's where like some of this can matter especially in like you know you think about the hot spotting that we were talking about you know with the the skewing you know like the reads to his his updates are going to be a big deal right because of how many followers he has um so i don't know like uh, it was just as I was thinking through, like in the in the Twitter examples, you know, like, well, if you had to develop a Twitter today, because do you remember, like, here's something like this is to Twitter's credit, for example, uh, something that's, you know, kind of amazing to think about. Do you remember it used to be pretty commonplace to see the the Twitter fail whale? When's the um, last time you saw the Twitter fail whale? Right. Exactly my point. Yeah, I can't I, I tell you when the last time I saw it. So, you know, credit to them, you know, for, for what they did here. Right. Cause that, that's, you know, and obviously other social platforms have, have similar, you know, types of uh, challenges that they're trying you know, problems that you're trying to solve. But, you know, it, that's where this stuff matters as f- like how, what your strategy, your, your data partitioning and storage strategies are going to be. Yeah,
1: it's it's really mind-boggling when you start diving into all this stuff. So, um, I think Jay Z uh, put in these things down here. You want to
0: you want to tell us about them, Jay Z? Uh, yeah. So uh, we had just had a couple examples here of uh, you know, of them being like the sensor data that we kind of already talked about the sensor data. You know, like new readers coming in from like IoT devices and whatnot. And users can uh, view the real time data of those and and pull reports for historical data uh you know and then and then michael already gave the example of like multi-tenant like SaaS platforms you know uh based on the customer where you might want to like partition it based on the customer and uh you know then then we hadn't really talked about this one but like the giant e-commerce uh product catalog like an amazon uh you know uh and then we we kind of already talked about the social media you know in the way of Twitter, but I wrote down, uh, Facebook here, you know, like the Facebook users. And, you know, if you think about the graph of, uh, com- composing that home screen, when you go to look at it,
1: man, I don't know why, but you just reminded me of Bill Murray from stripes, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's not a left field. I don't know
1: why it really is. I don't, I don't know, but that's really funny. Um, <laughs> cool. So we've covered a page and a half from this particular chapter. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, we are fast.
1: Yeah, we we are fast. But hopefully we painted the picture for you, right? Like what partitioning's for, why you'd use it, some of the some of the challenges you face in trying to find the right solution for what exactly it is you're trying to do. So um obviously a resource we like is the book and again, go leave a comment on on this particular page and and get a chance to win that. It is one of our very favorite. So
0: yep. Yeah. Yeah. And with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. So
1: I'm actually excited about this one. I couldn't find online like documentation for this, but I just noticed it one day. So (laughs) I don't know if you've ever worked in a really large Java project, like an enterprise level Java project that's got like 5 billion files in it. And you'll go to do a search in Visual Studio Code, and you almost have anxiety about clicking something and going away from it because you lose your search um, context, right? Like, it, Or maybe you need to search for something else, and then you're like, man, I don't want to lose this search. There's something you can do. So if you do, in, in the case of what I'm talking about, if you go into Visual Studio Code, you do a Command-Shift-F, which is, I think find in all files, not just in the file that you're in, like finding all files that are available in your workspace. When you do your search right up underneath the search, there's like a little ellipsis and there's a thing that says, uh, hold on, I will tell you, it says open an editor. This is so amazing. So it'll tell you how many results. So like the one I'm looking at that I did testing this out on my local here is It'll open up a new file and it'll say search and it'll actually in the tab name, it'll say search colon, then whatever you search for. And then in the file itself, it will have the file where it is, the line numbers where the searches showed up. And what you can do is on Mac, you can hold down command. I'd imagine on windows, you can hold down control it is, and you can actually click on the file and it'll take you there. So you won't lose that search thing. That search tab is still there. So you can go back to it and then command click on something else. So it is a fantastic way for you to, without losing your place, because that's another thing that I hate about that particular search on the left that shows up is it's easy to lose. Which file did I click on? Where did I go? you can do it in that one file and you can sort of keep track of where you've been. And it's, it's absolutely fantastic. So that is my tip for this one.
0: Yeah, that's pretty awesome. I, I think the, the, I've never tried it, but I would, I think the thing that I would like the most about it is because like, um, I don't find like, I actually go back I'll like navigate back to the Explorer and then come back to that search like just click on the magnifying glass and your search is still executed. And, and if you did click on any file in there, when you do navigate back to the file explorer or to the explorer and then come back to the search, like it's still highlighted, you know, it's like a muted color. But what I think like, cause I never, like I said, until you just said this, I hadn't tried this, but now that I have, I'm like, Oh man, this is amazing because what I think is like a, a point being undersold here is that like you could execute multiple searches totally now and like, just open that result in an editor. So you, so if you wanted to like, if you had a need for keeping multiple things and you would know what it is and um you know, you, like you said, you get some context around the result too. So you can kind of see where it is. So that's, that's super cool. Like I never, I never bothered to click that.
1: Yeah. I I I saw it one day because whatever it was that I was doing was really getting on my nerves and I saw it and I was like what is this? And you know, I clicked it and I was like oh man. <laughs> Game changer. <laughs> yeah, that is that is amazing. So, yeah, that's that's mine.
0: All right. Well, super cool. Uh all right, so for my tip of the week, uh I've got a couple for you. So the first one is you know maybe you, like your mileage is going to vary, but I thought it was pretty cool when I found it. So, if you have an iPad Pro, for example, like like you've seen those magic keyboards that Apple has for the for the iPads, and it's not just the the, the large Pros that have them, but there's different sizes. But I am going to focus on the $330 super three hundred and yeah, thirty dollars keyboard, three hundred fifty dollars keyboard, sir. Oh, no man, yeah, yeah. This is up there with like you know a, a Moonlander, right? But 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 basically, it's like a it's basically turns your iPad Pro like you, you have like the twelve point nine inch iPad Pro and it'll make it into like almost a laptop right with a keyboard and trackpad and all that kind of stuff and like when it opens up it doesn't unlike other uh, cases where the 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 glass is now sitting you know on the same surface level as the keyboard instead now it's up higher so like you know your fingers as you're typing aren't necessarily you know, blocking your view of it or anything. That $350 keyboard right now on Amazon is 243 Ooh. Yeah. That's why I thought I would call that out because that's a big deal. And for those in the United States, uh, Best Buy often will match Amazon. And if you are a Best Buy Rewards member, then you could get your, you know, your points uh, from that too. So, or like whatever, you know, other, I'm sure for, for Alan, it's probably Costco if we're being honest.
1: Uh, but. I love me some Costco. Uh, but you do the only thing about Best Buy or most of these places it has to be sold by Amazon and it has to be in stock. And, this one in this, not.
0: this is shipped and sold by Amazon, but it's so, out of stock. Well, that just happened during the course of this talk. This, cause it was in stock at the start of this show. That's a killer price, yeah. So and and I and it's been like that for a few days now. So I'm kind of questioning, like, you know, Amazon might keep it at that. Like, I don't, I don't know. So now I'm, I'm sad that it's out of stock now. Um, so, any anyway, rate, that was a stupid one. Then fine, whatever. Uh, no, it's
1: still good. If you if it come back in stock, that'll be amazing. Maybe it'll go all the way through Black Friday.
0: Well, uh, let's see. It is in stock in white, but. That it's only thirty dollars off, uh, or yeah, oh, no, sorry, twenty dollars off in white. Technically nineteen, if we're being more accurate. <laughs> Whatever, that's what we do. The details matter, at any rate. Um, and and oh, that keyboard is like good for the the third, fourth, and fifth generation of the twelve point nine iPad Pro. So you know, kind of a cool deal. Um, hopefully it'll come back in stock now. Here's the other one. This one's super cool. And I know that you're going to like this. I am honestly trying to learn this thing. So I can't tell you like a whole lot of experience on it yet, but it's called real, it's called room EQ wizard. And the idea here is that if you're setting up, you know, some fancy pants speakers that this thing can sample your room for you to tell you like it's wrong or it's right or it can help you to do it. And they actually have like specific, you can provide your own calibration or you can use like uh, specific microphones that they already have calibrated the software for and, you know, other equipment that they've calibrated it for. But this is where my head's at now is trying to use this properly and set up my, my, my room.
1: That's actually very exciting, so to me.
0: <laughs> yes, I thought you might like this because like if you like i, I I'm trying to think like. Okay, because I wanted – so this thing is for – here, let me just – for those listening, this is a free software for room acoustic measurement, loudspeaker measurement, and audio device measurement. The measurement and analysis features help you to optimize the acoustics of your listening room, studio, or home theater and find the best locations for your speakers, subwoofers, and listening position. So from right there, you can kind of get an idea of what this thing does. And like I said, it's free. It runs on – Windows, like since version, I think it was uh, XP. So if you're still running Windows XP, first of all, uh, I'm going to give you a link to some uh, hardware that we we've talked about for you know maybe running Windows 10, Um, but also uh, everything from Mac OS 10.11, which I forget which one that is. Uh, up to, you know, current M- Mac as well as Linux. So, you know, point being a variety of different platforms, like surely you use a platform that this thing can run on. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's, it's super cool. I, I, I like I said, I, you know, I'm still learning it myself. So, uh, you know, you, you can learn it with me. I like it. Or I'm sure there's like, you know, some listeners are like, oh, that's old hat. I already know it. (laughs) So, yeah. So, uh, you know, we hope you've uh, learned a lot about partitioning. I know that uh, we have been thoroughly enjoying this book. Like Alan said, we will definitely have a link to this in the resources we like section. And um, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on all the major platforms, wherever you'd like to find your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, you know, wherever uh, in, in, if you happen to be listening to this on, uh, you know, not your preferred platform, you know, let us know and we'll figure out how, like, you know, what we can do to get on that other platform. And, you know, like I said earlier, we, we do greatly appreciate uh, the reviews. So if you w- head to wwwcodingblocksnet slash review, you can find some helpful links.
1: Yep. Hey, and while you're up there at CodingBlocks.net, make sure you check out our show notes. They're they're extensive. We have examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback questions and rants to the Slack channel, which is amazing. So go to CodingBlocks.net slash Slack. If you're not already a member, join it. There are
0: just tons of awesome people up there. Yeah, and uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at uh, CodingBlocks or head to uh, CodingBlocks.net, and you can find all our social links there at the top of the page. And be sure to follow me, uh, you know, on Slack at Joe.